Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. So our passage, and I invite you to stand with me, is Matthew 24. I'm going to read a few verses from the section we read last week to remind you of the kinds of things he's been saying to his disciples as he's taken them across from Jerusalem over to the Mount of Olives and is speaking to them privately. And I'm going to begin in verse 9 and read through 12, and then we're going to go on to 15, which is going to be on the screen behind me, or maybe not, but whatever. Yes, it is. Okay. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, just them. There's no one else there. It says it was from private. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. Then skipping to our passage this morning. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Let the reader understand that is part of God's word. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive if possible even the elect behold I have told you in advance therefore if they say to you behold he's in the wilderness do not go out or behold he's in the inner rooms do not believe them for just as the lightning comes from the east and this and appears even to the west so will the coming of the son of man be wherever the corpse is there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. The word of the Lord. Please stand, lift your arms to heaven as we ask for God to empower his word with his spirit. Father, we come to your word and we ask that it may speak to us in our day. And that we may lead lives of faith and courage and fruitfulness. As a result, pour your spirit out on all of us, Father. I, as I I speak, and me as I speak, 
these, the flock, Father, that you have been gracious to give me as we listen together to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you will know what the disciples knew when Jesus spoke these words, particularly the words not that I began with, but that you looked at with me together on the screen, because these are words that are familiar to anyone who knows the Old Testament. There are tremendous parallels between what Jesus says in this discourse, this time of conversation, it's what a discourse is or a speaking to, between this discourse and the end of the book of Daniel. At the end of Daniel, the archangel Michael comes to Daniel and says, I'm going to show you what lies ahead in the distant future. And he speaks to him and he says, and at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will stand and there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. At that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake to these to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness. He says, but those who have insight will understand. Further on, he says, the abomination of desolation will be set up in that time. And so of all the terms that, that are similar between the two, the abomination of desolation, which is only referred to in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, is the same kind of phrase it's the same two words but using a slightly different order that's I think significant in in the all of that discourses as it's recorded in Matthew and Mark and so Jesus disciples are listening to him speak and they have in their heads a thought and that thought is well we know that prophecy of Daniel And it does seem to us like many of the elements of that prophecy were fulfilled about 150 years ago or 180 at the time that Jesus is speaking this. Because somewhere in 160, 150 BC, and I don't remember the exact date, the the nation of Israel, Judea, was under the thumb not of the Romans but of the prior empire that Rome took over from the Seleucid Empire and there was a king of the Seleucid Empire known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus hated the the Jews because of their constant rebellious ways and so he came to Jerusalem in 150 something and he just desecrated the temple. He erected in the middle of the temple the second temple the one that was built by Nehemiah and Ezra and the others. He built not Solomon's temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. In the second temple, he erected an altar to Zeus. And on that altar, he offered the flesh of pigs in the middle of the temple of God. Active desecration. He, he told the Jews that they had to eat pig. He, he commanded them that they were not to be circumcised. And if you were circumcised, you are liable, if you've circumcised your children, you are liable to death. Um, he did many things like that, forbidding Jewish worship of, of their God. And that was seen and is still seen by many today as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. 
So his disciples are going to say, whoa, that abomination of desolation, that was in the temple 180 years ago. But you're saying it's ahead? And of course, Jesus is saying it's ahead. It's not just back then. Perhaps there was a fulfillment back then that was the beginning of the thing. But like my wonderful roses at this time of year, there's a a bud that appears. And it seems like at the end of the year, I've gotten the best roses this year. But you don't know it. You see a bud, and then that bud grows. So it's beautiful in the bud form. And then it flowers and it starts to open and it's beautiful as it opens and it's usually monocolor initially of these roses that I have. It's one color. But as the rose opens up, it changes colors and it becomes this, I was going to show a picture, but I thought that would be too proud, all right, of my perfect rose this week. And so as it flowers, it turns color, right? And it's beautiful, variegated. But then at the end, the petals fall away and the actual purpose of the rose is revealed in the rose hip. Which if roses were not hybridized and done all the things that we do to them would be the seeds of another rose. And so you would achieve out of that another rose. And so you have these stages of of fulfillment and stages of beauty the ultimate one, even if you're looking at that perfect variegated rose, the ultimate one is still ahead. And that's how prophecy often is. And the disciples would have known that, but you need to know that as well because we're looking at a prophecy that some people say was fulfilled in 70 AD. And And so we might be like the disciples looking at these as past events rather than understanding them to be events that still lie ahead and that are significant for us. And so as we speak about the abomination of desolation, which is the theme of my sermon, there are many things I could speak about out of this passage and maybe in coming weeks I will, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's... It's worth a sermon, you know, there's many things here that are worth looking at. But this morning, I want to talk to you, I want to speak out of the word of God to you about the abomination of desolation, which Jesus reminds them was was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Therefore, he says to his disciples and through them to you, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Now there's a lot of stuff in here, but there's only in this discourse. We read some last week, we'll read more next week, all right? But there's only one sentence in the entire sermon where the guy who's writing it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recording the words of Jesus, speaks to you and says, get this straight. And that's right here. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, and then Matthew breaks off and he says to you, let the reader understand. There's a lot of of things in here, in these verses that are 
that are difficult to understand, where the corpses, they're the vultures, will gather on it. He doesn't say it about that. He says, understand the abomination of desolation. Let the reader understand this point. This is the fulcrum. This is the axle. Everything else revolves around the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And when that happens, run for the hills. That's what he says. When the abomination of desolation stands in the holy place, run for your life. What does this mean? Let the reader understand. Apply yourself to it. Think about it. Don't just wander away and say it's a mystery. Apply yourself. And that's what I hope we'll do this morning. There are a number of theories about this passage, when this might have taken place, when it might in the future take place. There are three classic views, or three modern views, one of which is the classic view, and I hold to it. The two more modern views I've talked about in weeks gone by, but let me, let me speak to you about them again now. The more modern views look at this passage and the warnings that Jesus gives and they say, you know what? Wow, those are horrible things. But we have, we have in the works of the ancient historian Josephus, the record of the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place, took place in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian came, the Roman conqueror, son of the emperor, came and with his army destroyed Jerusalem and killed and killed and killed, wiping out the city of Jerusalem and destroying the temple. Destroying it to such a degree that it's never been erected since. And so this, this, this view says, well, Jesus here is, is speaking about that day. He's, he's telling us, his disciples, what lies ahead in 70 AD, and there are, there are significant proponents of this view. Some of you know a man named R.C. Sproul. He did not write this, but he had it put on his website by one of his associates. And he's talking about what is the abomination of desolation. And that's the view of R.C. I could read it from his own works, but this is briefer and more succinct. So this paper says, if Antiochus Epiphanes, the one who brought the the altar to Zeus into the temple, was the short-term fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, who was the longer-term fulfillment, the one Jesus spoke of 200 years later? Notice he asks who. Important question, who? You know, you know, if you wrote a news story ever and you were told you have to have a who, a what, a where, a when, a why, right? The five W's of a news story. This one's asking who, who? Well, sure enough, goes on, within 40 years of Jesus' words, the temple in Jerusalem was again desecrated. It happened in 70 AD, and this time it came from the Romans, led by their commander Titus. His armies 
were an abomination because they carried with them idolatrous images of their emperor and they brought desolation because they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its temple. And once again, the Holy of Holies was defiled. The Jewish historian Josephus claims that 1.1 million people, most of them Jewish, were killed during the siege so that the bodies were literally piled up around the altar. The population of Jerusalem at that time was likely enlarged given that many had come to the city to celebrate the Passover which was to occur right as the siege was being launched. Prior to the siege, Romans allowed the Jewish worshipers to enter the city for the feast but they did not allow them to leave. In love then, Jesus spoke to his disciples about this horrendous event in advance to prepare them for what was coming, to warn them ahead of time so that they could flee the city. Thankfully, you and I were not alive to see such things. It's in the past, it was a who, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the one Jesus is speaking of, thankfully. We were not alive then to see these horrors. These are past. There is another view that's called the dispensational view. And one of the the most well-known proponents of this view of what's going on here is a guy named a pastor named John MacArthur out in California. And he preached a sermon, this is actually him rather than an associate, on the abomination of desolation. And he has a very different understanding of when these events are, when they take place, how they're fulfilled. And he says, and what happens if you put, he spent, whoa, oh, whoa, whoa, I can't tell you how many pages he, is, he has spent. I think he must have spent 45 minutes getting to this point in his sermon. All right, explaining what this event, that event, what they all mean, how they, how they relate to each other. Then he says, and what happens if you put the biblical picture together is in Daniel 2, we find that there will be in the end time arising of the old Roman Empire. The final form of the Roman Empire has 10 toes and it is territorially reconstructed Rome. What is the answer he's giving to the question posed, what does this mean? If the first was a who, this is a where, right? You understand what I'm saying? This is saying territorially reconstructed Rome, the old territory of Rome. The old Roman Empire occupied Western Europe and some of Eastern Europe as well, of course, but in the new final form of the Roman Empire, which is crushed by the coming of the Messiah, it shows this big image, the final form, a ten-toed representation of the Roman Empire which is smashed by the Messiah who's called the stone cut out without hands. So the Messiah comes and crushes a final ten-nation confederacy which is like the old Roman Empire. But what's going to happen is out of that system, according to Daniel, and according to the book of Revelation, will arise a great leader. And this guy will arise out of that European confederacy and he'll become a savior to Israel. He's going to be the one who's the protector of Israel. They're going to make an alliance with him as we'll see in a little while for their protection against this Arab-Russian alliance which will come into a final form as Ezekiel 38 describes it and comes against them. They do it for their own protection. He, by the way, is the one spoken of in Isaiah 10 who is the one they lean on who smites them because in the midst of that alliance he destroys them. 
Israel has made an alliance with this guy. He's in control. The powers of the world move into Israel as described in the 11th chapter of Daniel. It's described with detail at the time of the end, verse 40, the king of the south comes, the king of the north comes. All these powers come in and then comes tidings out of the east and that great army from the east. And in this final conflagration that happens, the Antichrist and his western power is victorious. At that point, when he's made his alliance with Israel and becomes Israel, Israel's protector, the world comes to fight against him, to fight against him and take Israel in that battle. He wins, he wins, and then he wins, and when he wins, he then commits the abomination of desolation, as we'll see in Daniel. So it's, it's a where and somewhat of a who. It's the, the where is Israel, the who is the Antichrist. And the final abomination of desolation, he says, is that he desecrates the temple. There is a temple that's re-erected at the last days, not in 70 AD, the last days, still ahead in Jerusalem. And this guy comes and he desecrates that holy place and he fulfills the prophecy of Christ. And the view that I hold to and that I urge you to is the classic view, which says, Yes, there may be some foretelling of the 70 AD destruction, just as in Daniel there was some foretelling of Antiochus Epiphanes, but the main events foretold here still lie ahead. It's not a who, it's not a where, it's a what. What? What is the abomination of desolation? What is that? Because that's the thing we're told to understand. We're not to understand the ten toes and Arab and Russian alliances and that kind of thing. It's nowhere found in scripture. It's not told to you. You need to understand these things to understand what's being told you here. It's a what? What is the abomination of desolation? Now, interestingly, Daniel speaks of the same thing, but he calls it the desolating abomination. All right, which is different. Desolating is a verb, desolating abomination. In other words, this abomination makes desolate in Daniel. But in the synoptics, in Mark and Matthew, in the New Testament, it is an abomination of desolation. It's the genitive case in the Greek. Dr. MacArthur says it's the genitive and then he turns it around and he says that this is a desolating abomination. That's an impossible use of the genitive case. Genitive is in English the possessive case. It's a little bit beyond that, but it means the possessive. It's like if I speak about, you know, Nathan's head, certain things come to your head, your mind. You know, like round and bald and things like that. That's Nathan's head, all right? That's the genitive case, Nathan's head, all right? So if I take and we change for synonyms the abomination of desolation, we would end up with the great evil sin which is what an abomination is, the, the great offense to God of 
barrenness, emptiness, wilderness, futility, which are synonyms for desolation. And so what you see in Jesus is that he's twisted the terms so that the abomination is the desolation. In Daniel, the desolation causes an abomination, but in Jesus, the abomination is the choice of desolation, okay? Now, hold that in mind, because there's definitely a tie going both ways between abomination and desolation. But in Christ's foretelling, what you need to look for is desolation, embraced, and an abomination to God. Now, I'm, I'm not denying that it can go both ways. The abomination of idolatry throughout the Old Testament is said to lead to desolation. Israel is desolate because it committed adultery with foreign gods, and thus God sends desolation. But as we look at these three views, the, the classic view, which I take, is that these events lie ahead and that they are events that will apply to your life and mine. That these are warnings that are actually living warnings for us, which the other two views just totally deny. Remember the one view said, thank goodness we didn't live back then and we escaped this. Remember? The other view says, well, it's after the church has been raptured. So it's just the Jews, and it's a warning to the Jews, which I think on the face of it, as you listen to Jesus speaking to his disciples, seems crazy. And the fact that it would be put in the Christian Bible and given to the church as a warning when it applies to the Jews seems crazy as well. That Jesus would be giving warnings to the Jews. But there are some crazier things about both these views. Crazy in both these other views is the idea that either Titus Vespasian in 70 AD or the Antichrist in some time in the future is going to corrupt the holy place of the temple, all right? The holy place of the temple is the inner sanctum of the temple where the priest is allowed to go in only once a year. That's the holy place. Aaron goes into the holy place once a year to offer. That's the holy place, all right? And it's separated off from the rest of the temple by this great veil behind which no one is ever to go under fear of death. That's the holy place. And what the first view says, the view that says, thank goodness it happened back then, is that God still viewed the temple with its holy place as a holy place in 70 AD. Which, if you think about things, is an illogical anachronism. It's taking events and putting them whopper-jawed out of time because in just three days from this warning by Jesus, he is going to die and the veil of the temple is going to be ripped from top to bottom. There is no holy place anymore. From then on, the temple of God is inside man, where his Holy Spirit lives. And so this claims that a temple was desecrated, that was holy to God by Titus Vespasian, right? 
But God had already declared his judgment on that temple and desecrated it by having the temple ripped from top to bottom. So it is impossible for Titus Vespasian to have desecrated God's holy place where he dwelt. That ripping said, I'm no longer here. But the other view has almost exactly, perhaps in even greater measure, the same problem because what it says is that the Jews rebuild a temple and God goes back in there and the sacrifices are offered again sometime in the future and that is the holy place. The church is gone and once again sacrifices are being offered and God is satisfied by sacrifices and that is crazy. It's nowhere found in the Bible. Nothing like this. Oh, they'll say in Revelation that it's found, but there, what, the, what Revelation ends with is, that, and I saw, no, I saw no temple in heaven, John says. I saw no temple because what is the temple in heaven? He says, because God himself and the Lamb are the temple. In other words, we dwell in the temple of God and we are the temple of God in this life. And so I say to you, whatever, whatever of these views of Christ's warning you adopt, don't make the mistake of thinking this warning is not to you about the abomination of desolation, which the other two views do. This applies, and you'd better be aware of what the abomination of desolation consists of. Abomination. An abomination is something that is, is disgusting to God. An abomination, many of the abominations that the Bible speaks of are sexual acts. Idolatry, sexual acts, stealing from others, lying, but especially over and over again, sexual deeds that are against God's will and idolatry. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. You're to keep my charge that you don't practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you in the promised land so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it. This is probably speaking about idols. You shall not behave thus as the people of the land did toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. It is an abomination to kill your children. An abomination to God. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations. This ties together idolatry and prostitution as an abomination. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire. In other words, he burned him to Moloch. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. So again, we break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations. To marry the people who commit abominations is to commit an abomination to God. The devious are an abomination to the Lord. The fool has said in his heart there's no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. So injustice 
is abominable to God. It's an abomination. We could go on and on. But an abomination is a great offense. A great offense. A purposeful throwing your sin in the face of God and saying, I don't care. All right? This is abomination. Desolation. Well, to be desolate, desolate is also a word for the wilderness. Jesus went into the desolation when he went into the wilderness. <coughs> desolation means to be empty without <coughs> people, without children, without fruit. Empty, without people, without children, without fruit. So he tells the Israelites, I'm not going to drive out the people of Canaan before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate, empty, and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I'm going to keep it fruitful rather than let the beasts take it over. I will lay waste, he says in Leviticus, your cities as well as make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. So desolation is the absence of God from his sanctuary. It's desolate. The temple's desolate when God leaves it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and I will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. Then Absalom, her brother, said to Tamar, his sister, who had been violated by a stepbrother, has Ammon... Amnon, your brother, been with you, but now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house, which means she never knew another man and never had a child. May their camp be desolate, the evil. No one there. May none dwell in their tents. Emptiness and tents. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses will become desolate, houses without people, even great and fine ones, without occupants. In Isaiah, he says, shout for joy, O desolate one who have borne no child, the woman who has no child, who has not been married or has been married and unable to have a child is desolate, barren. And his promise is that of Israel of restoration in Isaiah is that it will no longer be said to you forsaken by God, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. In other words, it won't be said that God has left his temple anymore. This is a promise of the restitution of the, the exiles coming back. Nor longer will it be said to your land desolate, but you will be called my delight in her and your land married. So the opposite of desolation is delight and marriage and fruitfulness. But desolation is the absence of those things. And so we have a warning here that when in the holy place you see the great abomination to God of desolation understand what's being said here Matthew says understand this 
then the return of Christ is near. And Jesus, who says, don't fear death, earlier in this chapter, this discourse, who says, don't fear death, don't fear what men can do to you, don't, don't be anxious about those things, says here, run for the hills when you see the abomination of desolation in the holy place. Now, what does it mean to be the, uh, that the abomination of desolation is in the holy place? The holy place today is the church where God is when two or three are gathered together, there am I. Not inside the temple, behind a curtain, but in our midst. And the temple of God is your life. So, when you see in your life an embrace of desolation, you need to run. When you're in a church where desolation is held up, you need to fly. And what is desolation? It's the celebration of fruitlessness and emptiness rather than fruitfulness. When David looked out across from his palace roof and saw this beautiful woman bathing in the twilight and called her to him and had sex with her, he had worries that were confirmed that this woman who was the wife of his friend and champion Uriah would end up pregnant because David sought pleasure rather than children and marriage. He was no doubt hoping that no baby would arise from this act. He wanted desolation. He wanted her to be desolate. He hoped his act was desolate. It was a desolate act, and he hoped the fruit of it would be desolation. Then when Uriah came back at his behest, and he said, go home and, and spend the night with your wife, and Uriah wouldn't do it, he finally sent him back and had him killed in battle. And he committed another act of desolation. And then God said, You've embraced desolation, and now you reap the whirlwind. Your son, conceived in Bathsheba, will die empty, desolate, and the sword will not leave your family. You loved desolation, now you get desolation. And when you embrace what God has given you for glory and fruitfulness and happiness. When you embrace what God has given you to fill your home and to fill your heart, the joys of physical intimacy, the 
the pleasures of touch, the power of relationship, but you say, but I don't want this to lead to children. You've embraced desolation. And in your heart, which is meant to be a temple of God, you've said, God, nah, I don't want it your way. And when the young man and the young woman come together and they want the pleasures that God always surrounds fruitfulness with, it's beautiful, it feels good, because he wants children, because he loves our fruitfulness. They come together and they say, we don't want fruitfulness. So the woman makes sure she's covered and they come together and they enjoy the pleasures that God has put together with fruitfulness. But they say, I don't want to be fruitfulness. They have embraced desolation. And outside repentance, they will taste desolation in their lives in years to come. There are many, many, many ways that you and I embrace desolation. We take our money and we stuff it in our accounts and in our wallets and we say, I've got money. And there are people around us who have nothing. But we don't use this filthy mammon, what Jesus calls it, to help the poor. We keep it to ourselves. We embrace desolation. God gave you money to help others and glorify him. And that money kills you and kills your life because you've embraced desolation. But there's a special warning here. And that's the warning that attaches to whole churches that embrace desolation. And the church embraces desolation when it says, you know what? We're not sure that God has the power to change your sin. So come to God as you are and trust him and don't fight your sin. Come to God with empty hands and just give him yourself. As though it's holy to come to God with no obedience, with no living faith, but to come and say, here I am, my hands are empty, take me instead of coming as everyone in the scriptures who comes to God comes with something in their hands whether it's repentance or like Cornelius the centurion to whom Peter sent the Gentile God says I've seen your alms 
I've seen you giving to the poor. I've heard your prayers. Come to God with prayers. Come to him with alms. Don't come to him in desolation. Bring what you have to God. It will not save you, but God has said that he honors fruitfulness and that he desires you to be fruitfulness. We live in a day, and I hate pastors who say that, but it's true, in a day that has honored desolation in the church, that has said it's just fine to have pastors in the church who are single in their 50s and who on Twitter talk about nothing but their cat and their favorite buildings in the city they live in. You understand what I'm saying about the man? But isn't God good? We're all broken creatures. And he's going to struggle with this his whole life. But you know that's just how it is in the new birth. You don't get over things. But you try your best. Which is more a work? Saying you try and you may not gain or win or saying, no, you win because the Holy Spirit gives you the power to win. Which one is actually more of a work? This new birth of the American church that is so powerless is awful. When in the church, the pastors are engaging in the abominable acts that people cast, were cast out of the promised land. The nations that were there before Israel were cast out because of men sleeping with women that weren't their wives. But it seems half the pastors in America have done that today. We have embraced desolation. We honor the family with two children and we say, what are you doing to the family with ten? Desolation, lack of fruit. It's time that we embrace the opposite of desolation, fruitfulness. That we bring our tithes to God and use our money for alms and that we give him the first fruits from our lives, which is our children, and we expect that God is going to care for our children if we have more than the culture says we should have and that God is in charge of this world and that for those who say I'm not going to add to the troubles of this world I'm just going to adopt I want to have children but I'll adopt because this world's bad and I don't want to add my problems and my kids to the mix and to call that faith say to them that's not faith and that's not fruitfulness that's enjoying marriage and saying, but I'm not going to have my body sag and I'm not going to have this and that and I'm not going to have, but I want to be a good, a do-gooder. Which is more works, having children or saying, I'm going to adopt because that's more righteous. I'm not speaking against adoption and you know that. It is a fine thing for families that have children and families that have none to adopt. But to look at adoption rather than bearing children as righteousness, when the avenue of childbirth is open to you, is not glorifying to God. And in our culture, desolation on every side. Living with unfruitful pursuits as though they're fruitful and dying the fruitful pursuits. 
men who've spent their entire lives fighting on soldier of fortune. Well, at least do something fruitful and enter the army and actually risk your life. Homosexuality, lesbianism, the denial of fruit. No wonder we live in a culture where the desolation is raining down on us. People live for drugs in the vicarious highs that are nothing. They live to drink, they live for sex. And they inherit the whirlwind. This is a serious warning. The abomination of desolation is real and it's a threat to you. And I hope you understand how dangerous this threat is and you have some insight into how much your life has been taken over by the abomination of choosing emptiness rather than fruitfulness. A God who's powerless rather than a God who raises the dead. An easy life, a nice life, a secure life rather than the glorious life of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the challenges that it brings to us. And I pray, Father, that we'll be equal to it, that you will allow us to read and understand and understanding and understanding be men. Father, we thank you, I thank you for this congregation that listens, for the, the grace that has extended me, both from these, my flock, Father, and from you. I praise you for this congregation and I pray that we will turn away from desolation and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.